0: Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, please make my words this morning drop like the rain and condense like the dew, like gentle rain on grass, like showers on new growth. By your grace help me to proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. Amen. Rejoice greatly, Zechariah says to the people of God. Shout loud, your king is coming. Though his words suggest joy, Zachariah's exhortation here I think would have been difficult for his audience to hear. To appreciate why we must remind ourselves of the context in which he prophesied. Though he doesn't explicitly say it, central to Zachariah's prophecy was the disrepair of the holy temple, God's holy temple what is now called the Second Temple. So this morning I'd like for us to meditate first on Zechariah and the Second Temple, and then I'd like for us to think with Paul in Romans 7 and 8 about our bodies, living temples of the Holy Spirit. So first, the Second Temple. The story begins, as it so often does, with Abraham, 1400 years before Zechariah was born. God promised to make Abraham the father of God's people, who would later be called Israel. And God promised to be Israel's God. After freeing Israel from their enslavement in Egypt, God brought them into the wilderness and gave them his law at Sinai. There he reconfirmed his commitment to being Israel's God in a covenant. Moses took the blood of young bulls And sprinkling it on the people, declared, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Now, years later, after Israel asked God for a king, God put David on the throne. And grateful for God's many blessings, David asked for permission to build God a temple. The first thing God did was reiterate his promise to dwell with Israel. And then he said to David, no, you can't build me a temple. 1 Chronicles 22 explains why David had been a man of war, and God did not want David's hand, stained by bloodshed, bloodshed, to build his temple. That would be a job for David's son, Solomon, a peaceful king. Our God is a God of peace. Solomon built a beautiful temple. 1 Kings 6 paints a vivid picture. It was built with uncut stones, roofed with fine Lebanese cedar and decorated with pure gold. When it was complete, the priests and the temple musicians sang from Psalm 136, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. This glorious temple reflected the glory of God and his promise to be with and for Israel. Yet 400 years later, In 586 BC, God's people were taken into exile by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed. Still, God promised to deliver and redeem and restore Israel. After the people of Judah had been in exile for 50 years, King Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon and allowed the people of Judah to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. Work on this reconstructed temple, the second temple, soon began under the governance of Zerubbabel. The book of Ezra says that after the foundation of the second temple was laid, the priests and the Levites gathered together to sing Psalm 136, just as they had when the first temple was built. They sang the psalm responsively, just like we do today, the Lord is good. His faithfulness endures for all generations. His steadfast love endures forever. Okay, so after 50 years in exile, the people of Judah have laid the foundation for the second temple. And then for 16 years, like very little progress was made on its reconstruction. The temple remained in disrepair. So what happened in those 16 years? Well, Ezra says that the building was undermined by Samaritans who threatened the people of Judah and bribed officials to put up roadblocks for the reconstruction. 16 years is a long time to wait, especially when very little good is happening. It's a long time to struggle against your enemies. And this is when Zechariah is writing towards the end of those 16 years. Though the temple remained unbuilt, Zechariah called God's people to rejoice. The prophecy would have posed a difficult problem for its hearers. Your circumstances are incredibly difficult, Zechariah says, but rejoice anyway. But I think there's actually a deeper problem that the uh, the the prophecy poses. Remember, Israel's entire religious life was centered around the temple. The law given in Deuteronomy required that God be worshiped in his temple. And the people's hymn book, the Psalms, speak throughout about coming into his sanctuary, abiding in his holy place. The temple's disrepair wasn't just a difficult circumstance. Someone hearing Zechariah's prophecy would have thought, how, quite literally, how are we supposed to worship God without a temple? What do you do when there is no holy place? I don't have an answer to that question. Uh, It's a deep problem that faced God's people between the destruction of the first temple and the reconstruction of the second. Indeed, it's a deep problem that faces many Jews today. But this is the problem that Zechariah claimed would be overcome when he prophesied that God would rule perfectly and gloriously not just in the temple, but from sea to sea, not just in Judah, but from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. That God would not forget the blood of the covenant that he had made with Israel at Sinai. This same rule, today's psalm says, will continue from generation to generation. Now, at the same time that God was speaking through Zechariah, he was also speaking through Haggai, another prophet. And God promised Haggai that the second temple would be even greater than the first, that magnificent temple that Solomon had built. So I imagine that Haggai's and Zechariah's prophecies would have felt somewhat empty to the hearers. The Samaritans were fighting dirty. Praising God was not getting the temple built. Judah had been bringing worship to a battle and it wasn't doing them any good. Better, I imagine many people of Judah thought, to resist. This is what conventional wisdom says. When your enemies are undermining your ability to worship God, do something. Appeal to the civil authorities or take up arms. But today's gospel reading has Jesus telling us that God hides his plans, his will from the wise and from the intelligent and reveals them to children. In other words, God's wisdom is not conventional wisdom. And in Zechariah, God promised that he would triumph without the need for violence. Hear the prophet's words. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. There will be no need for arms. God's victory will in no way be re- resisted. But unlike most earthly kings, he will triumph without his people fighting. Kings often placed upon their subjects the heaviest possible burden. They drafted them into war. But as Jesus says, our king... The king of Israel and the king of the world is not like this. He is gentle and lowly. He is, Zechariah says, humble, riding on a donkey. He has not asked his people to fight for him. In fact, he has asked his people not to fight for him. He invites you to surrender your heavy burdens unto him and to take on his light yoke instead. Do so, and he's promised to give you rest. Our God subverts expectations. He triumphs over his enemies through peace. He rules in humility. He makes his glory known through mercy and compassion. He frees the prisoners and rescues the captives. So, Zachariah says, rejoice greatly. Shout loud. This is the king who's coming. Second, living temples. So Zechariah's audience was living in between the time when God had made a promise and when the promise was fulfilled. And in the meantime, work on the temple had stalled. Perhaps you are familiar with this feeling. Those of us who have trusted Christ received a promise that we will be united with him And that we will be made like him, completely free from sin. Perhaps that promise has begun to be fulfilled in your life. You see glimpses of the Holy Spirit's work. He has borne fruit, love, joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness and self-control. In your thoughts and your words and in your deeds. If so, praise God. But perhaps you also feel as though the promise that you will become like Christ is stalling. I sometimes feel as far from Christ likeness as when I was first called. My sins are ever before me. If this describes you, consider Paul's words in Romans 7. The Holy Spirit was working in him, helping him to delight in the law of God in his inmost self, that's what he says. And what a testimony, may it be so for each of us. But Paul was also overwhelmed by his sinfulness. He described himself as a captive of the law of sin in dwelling in his body, calls himself a wretch. He begs to be delivered from this body of death. The language of body of death makes our bodies sound like tombs, and no wonder so many people, non-Christians and Christians alike, have thought that Christianity teaches that our bodies are ultimately unimportant. But I don't think this is quite what Paul is saying. Because if we pair this with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul describes your body and mine as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And just as the first and second temples in Israel were built to reflect God's glory so too as temples of the Holy Spirit are our bodies meant to glorify God. And this gift, the Holy Spirit dwelling in our bodies as his temple, gives us at least one advantage over the exiled people of Judah. If you are in Christ, then so long as you have a body, you have a temple, a place to worship God and give him praise and glorify him. Now, if your temple is, like Paul's, certainly like mine, wretched, beset by sin, in disrepair, take heart. The psalmist says, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Call on God for help. He is near to those who call on him in truth. He hears the cry of those who fear him, and he saves them. As he promised to rebuild the second temple, so God has vowed to rebuild your body. Broken as it is, you are his temple. And God cares too much about his glory and cares too much about you to allow his temple to remain unfinished forever. The psalm says that the Lord watches over all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. And I think that means that he will restore us, his living temples and destroy whatever wickedness remains in us. He will will rebuild you, and you will radiate his glory. If you have trusted in Christ, then you are bound to God through the Son, the mediator of the new covenant. This was the covenant signified and sealed at your baptism. It is the covenant Jesus referred to in the Gospel of Luke, saying this is the new covenant in my blood. And it is the gospel that we is the covenant that we remind ourselves of every time we share in the Lord's meal. It will never be removed. If God was faithful to the covenant sealed with the blood of the bulls at Sinai, how much more will he be faithful to the covenant sealed with the blood of his son at Calvary? God will rebuild those who trust him into a temple greater than the first. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Paul asks, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For it is through Christ that God is making you into a temple that can never be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15 promises the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Perhaps you wonder how and why this great and glorious God is rebuilding such a broken temple. Paul goes into the how in the next section of Romans 8, which we'll read and meditate on next week. As for why, remember today's scriptures. He is rebuilding you according to his gracious will, which he conceals from the wise and reveals to children. He is rebuilding you because as with the people of Israel, he loves you and desires to dwell in you and be glorified through you. He is rebuilding you because he is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, faithful to his promises. Yes, our Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all he has made. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen.